turn to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. And this morning, we'll read the chapter before we get into it. Read the entire chapter here, so if you'll follow along in your copy of God's Word. In Ezra chapter 9, we'll read verses 1 through 15. Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. Now when these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, and the Ammonites, and the Moabites, and the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of princes and rulers hath been in chief, been chief in this trespass. When I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonied. And then were assembled unto me everyone that trembled at the words of God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away, and I sat astonied until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice I arose from my heaviness, and having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God, and said, O oh my God, I am ashamed, and I blush to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass is grown up unto the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day, and for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to the captivity, and to the spoil, and to the confusion of face, as it is this day. And now for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God, to leave us a remnant to escape, and to give us a nail in his holy place, that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. For we, are, we were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give a reviving, to set up the house of our God and to repair the desolations thereof and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. And now, O oh, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments, which thou hast commanded by thy Servants, the prophet, saying, The land unto which ye go to possess it, it is an unclean land with the filthiness of the people of the lands with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another with their uncleanness. Now therefore give not your daughters unto their sons, neither take their daughters unto your sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever, that ye may be strong, and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds, and for our great trespass, seeing that our God hath, has punished us less than, than our iniquities deserve, 
and hast given us such deliverance as this, should we again break thy commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations, wouldest not thou be angry with us till thou hath consumed us, so that there should not be no remnant nor an escaping? O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous, for we remain yet escaped, as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in our trespasses, for we cannot stand before thee because of this. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. It's not often that I've seen a man genuinely weep tears of repentance over his sin. Occasionally I have witnessed that. There have been times when that man was me. And I fear that in our decadent society, even we as believers have grown used to sin, that it doesn't even shock us anymore. Spurgeon warned his fellow pastors of the danger of dealing with sin and sinners professionally so that we lose our dread of evil. What first shocked us, maybe sometime in the past or some years ago, what shocked us now has come commonplace. And it's become routine. As someone else has perceptively observed in poetic form, Vice is a monster of so frightful mien as to be hated needs but to be seen, yet seen oft, too oft, familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. And because we are so desensitized to sin, we fail to have a proper response toward it, whether it be our own sin or the sins of others. We minimize it, we justify it, we ignore it, and we go our way unaffected by it. We see someone reacting in a godly way towards sin, well, well, they're a little bit fanatical, aren't they? They're just a little bit too extreme. That person's judgmental, that person's intolerant. How dare we cast stones at others? Does he think that he's without sin? And so by casting our stones at that person, we justify our sins and we go back to business as usual, wondering why God doesn't bless our lives more than he does. Our text this morning relates Ezra's reaction to sin of the exiles who had returned to Israel after the Babylonian captivity. It's about four and a half months after he led a remnant back to the land, he, it was reported to him that many of the people in Israel, including some of the priests and the Levites and the princes and the rulers, had sinned by taking pagan wives. Ezra did not take the news in stride. He didn't say, well, people will be people. Rather, We find, as we read here in our text, he tore his clothes, he pulled some of the hair from his head and his beard, and he sat down appalled and speechless until the time of the evening offering. It was devastating to Ezra. 
to see the sin of his people, of God's people. By then, a number of godly people had gathered around him, and he arose and then fell to his knees, and he lifted up his hands to the Lord and confessed the great sin of his people, identifying himself with them, although he had not sinned in this regard. And his prayer, which ranks, I think, with Nehemiah chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 9 as one of the great prayers of confession in the Bible, it shows us the godly reaction to sin. The godly reaction to sin is to recognize it from Scripture, to mourn over it, and then to confess it without excuse to the God of mercy. How a person reacts to the news of sin tells us a lot about that person. You know, sometimes we hear about the sin of someone, maybe it's adultery, and we get a real kind of thrill maybe hearing or reading about the juicy details. Well, that reveals that we do not hate the sin, or plus it makes us vulnerable to it ourselves. And while I confess I have never reacted as strongly as against sin as Ezra did, I have no beard, and it's kind of hard to pull my hair out. But sometimes I don't think we react to it nearly like Ezra did. And maybe part of his reaction is, uh, can be explained culturally. But you know, I think we can still learn some things from him and from this chapter about how to abhor sin and not be so desensitized to it and how to deal with it. Notice with me, the godly reaction to sin is to recognize it from Scripture. How do we know what is right and wrong? Is it just a feeling that we get? Years ago, there was a popular song, and it was supposed to be a Christian song, that said, how can it be wrong when it feels so right? I hope that most Christians know, and you here this morning, know that feelings are not a solid basis for determining right and wrong. And yet I've had young people, and they too being Uh, Supposed to be Christian young people, they've told me, well, they're going to marry a non-Christian because they've prayed about it and they feel a peace about it. Never mind that the Bible strongly forbids entering into such a marriage. It's all about how you feel about it. I've had Christian spouses tell me that they feel peace about divorcing their mates for unbiblical reasons. The peace that they feel is the relief of escaping from a difficult relationship, not the peace of God. But they often will act on feelings rather than on God's word. And some say that we should follow our consciences. Be careful about following your conscience because our conscience is only as reliable as to the degree that it's been formed by Scripture. Don't do what your conscience necessarily says unless your conscience has been trained by God's Word. 
For example, there are more and more young people today living together outside of the bounds of marriage. Some of them claim to be Christians. That tells me they don't have a clue about what God's Word says about sexual purity before marriage or outside of marriage. Their sense of right and wrong has been formed by, more by the culture than by Scripture. Notice with me that Scripture reveals to us what sin is. Ezra was appalled when he heard about these Jews marrying pagans because he knew that God's word condemned it. He says there in chapter 9, verse 10, he says, For we have forsaken thy commandments. And he goes on to cite God's prohibition against intermarriage with the pagans of the land. And his citations are not an exact quote, but a summary of the passages from Exodus chapter 34 and Deuteronomy chapter 7. And the reporting of this sin to Ezra there in verse 1 reflects the biblical language in that these are people groups that have that inhabited the land before the conquest after, uh, under Joshua. Only the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Egyptians were still in existence, but the point is Ezra and the leaders who reported this sin to him knew that it was a sin because God's word declared it to be a sin. When the princes reported that the holy seed had been intermingled with the peoples of the land, in verse 2, their concern was not racial corruption, but rather moral corruption. In the original command, God explained the reason for this prohibition. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, and verse 4, he said, For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. Exodus 34, verse 16 says, And thou thou take of their daughters unto thy sons, and their daughters go a-whoring after their gods, and make thy sons go a-whoring after their gods. You see, God knew the tendency of fallen hearts. Rather than influencing their mates to abandon their idols and follow the one true God, the Israelites would be prone to mingle pagan idolatry with the worship of God. And that's what happens in so many unequally yoked marriages today. The Christian might say, well, I'm going to try to win my mate to Christ. And more times than not, that Christian is brought down because of the unsaved spouse. This is what we call synchronism, syncretism used that term before. It's a major problem for God's people. It's when we don't blatantly deny Christianity, but rather we add to our faith the beliefs and practices of the world. And in a very short time, we're virtually indistinguishable from the world in our thinking and the way we live. And because of this propensity, God forbade intermarriage and he even prohibited the Jews from seeking the peace and prosperity of the pagans in their pagan ways. The Old Testament is very clear about this and they had to be clear separation of God's people from the pagans or God's people would be drawn into the pagans' practices. 
Blending in with the world rather than being distinct from it plagued the church down through the centuries. And monasticism was an attempt to escape worldly influence by withdrawing from the world. I was surprised to read some leading evangelicals who were suggesting a revival of monasticism as a way to stem the current flood of worldliness in the church. The problem with monasticism is that Jesus wants his followers to be in the world as salt and light, not to be of the world. That doesn't mean we isolate ourselves from the world, but we're distinctly different from the world, and we're salt and we're light. Jesus goes on, or calls us to go into a world with a very distinct mission, to reach the world with the gospel. Pretty hard to reach the world with this, the gospel when we would hide our way, ourselves away in some retreat someplace and never be in the world. Jesus' teaching was that we're not to be of the world. We must remain unstained from the world. The way we think and the way we live must be shaped by Scripture, not by the world. James chapter 4 and verse 4 says very clearly, very bluntly, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. 1 John 2.15 is no less strong. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love not the world, love the world, and the love of the Father is not in him. Or as Paul puts it with regard to seeking worldly riches, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and to many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. We have a number of high school and college age young people in our church, which I'm thankful for. And since our text very specifically warns against intermarriage with pagans, I want to underscore that by application. I believe the teen years are too early to be married. (laughs) I know some of you were married when you were just a teenager. That used to be the way things were. You know what? In fact, my wife and I were 19 When we got married. Too young, by the way. That being said, I know that teenagers start thinking about these things, though. They start thinking about love. It's often misunderstood. Marriage and... uh, They think about marriage, and often they're not taking a wise course in their thoughts and their actions. I've seen many Christian young people fall in love with unbelievers and consequently either fall away from their faith or they have their zeal for the Lord greatly diluted. And if you know and you love Jesus Christ, the most important thing to look for in a mate is a person who loves Christ and is devoted to following them. A believer and an unbeliever have 
Totally different values, different goals. An unbeliever is living for pleasure and for the things of this world. An obedient believer lives to seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness. And to join the two is a built-in formula for conflict and misery in your home. Your children also will suffer. So be on your guard. Satan uses the tool of unbelieving and worldly uh, spouses to ensnare many Christian young people. Our scripture is very clear. Paul says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. See, Christian or scripture reveals to us what sin is. But secondly, Scripture reveals to us what sin does to people. Satan, you know, always sugarcoats sin. Satan always makes sin look appealing. And we mistakenly think that sin will get us what we want. And it will always lead, though, to bondage and to ruin. Ezra's prayer reveals what the nation's sin had led them to. Look at verse 7 again. It says there, and for our iniquities have we, our kings, our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, into the captivity, and to a spoil, and to a confusion of face, as it is this day. Four times he refers to people uh, as an escaped remnant. You see it there in verse 8, verse 13, verse 8 says a remnant to escape, verse uh, uh, 13, such a, uh, such a deliverance. Verse 14, no remnant nor an escaping. And then verse 15, yet escaped. Four times he refers to the escaped remnant, showing how the formerly strong nation had been decimated. And then he also repeats, uh, repeatedly uses words like bondmen and bondage and desolations in verse 8 and 9. It describes the condition of the people. He acknowledges that if they do not repent, God may destroy them so no remnant survives or escapes. God's word plainly warns us that sin not only enslaves, but it eventually destroys the sinner. And while it's destroying the sinner, it's taking its toll on others as well. Christians who adopt a lifestyle that negates Jesus' commands, they're sacrificing both the future of their church and the people it should be reaching with the gospel. If we blend into the world, lost people will not hear the gospel through our witness and even our support of missionaries. Our children will go up thinking, Christianity has nothing to do with how I I live. And so they reject the faith altogether. It's a good indication of why our children many times don't live for the Lord is because we have not lived for the Lord. And so we must steep ourselves into God's word so that we are instantly recognize sin in ourselves and in turn from it, and being in the Bible more than we are in the TV or other worldly media will keep us aware of the devastating toll of sin. The godly reaction to sin is to recognize it from Scripture. 
If you're going to do that, you're going to have to be in the book. You're going to have to read it and study it. The godly reaction to sin is also to mourn over it. When Ezra heard of this sin of God's people, he tore his garment and his robe and he pulled some hair from his head and his beard and he sat down appalled for hours. His reaction probably seems extreme to us and in part it may be culturally determined again, but rare is the soul who is so shocked by disobedience and sin that he's appalled by it. It's partly because sin does not provoke our own wrath and we do not believe that sin provokes the wrath of God. Jesus said, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. I can't help but sense that the final explanation of the state of Christianity today is the defective sense of sin and the defective doctrine of sin. The reason so many professing Christians lack joy is that they've never experienced real deep conviction of sin, which is the essence of the gospel. They fail to see that they must be convicted of sin before they can ever experience joy. They do not like the doctrine of sin. They dislike it intensely. They object to it being preached. Maybe you're uncomfortable with it this morning. Too often, Christians want joy apart from the conviction of sin. But you know what? That's impossible. It can never be obtained. Conviction is the essential preliminary to true conversion. Let me say there are two areas where we must be careful in. I think it's the invitation time, the conclusion of a service, and revival. Now, don't misunderstand me as I'm talking about this. I believe an invitation at the end of the message. I believe in that, and I certainly believe there's a great need for revival. But we're not just looking for decisions. Just not looking for a great number of people to be coming to the altar. Not just looking for a great number of people to come to a revival meeting. Besides, revival isn't just one week out of the year anyway. I'm not terribly disturbed about people not walking the aisle at the end of a message. You know we don't sing 15 verses of Just As I Am until the altar gets full. We don't do that here. I'm not opposed to the public invitation for people to come to Christ and to get right with the Lord. There is certainly a place for it, but there's no place for manipulating people until into making a decision or a profession in which most likely would be a false profession. My prayer is for the Holy Spirit to work in each person's life who's under the sound of the preaching here at Spooner Baptist Church, and then they go out of those doors right there and they live the life that God wants them to live. Like I said, I'll give you opportunity to make a public decision, but you can walk these aisles and you can cry big crocodile tears, and then you can walk out and live the same life that you were living when you came in. And you know what? We're going to have a week of revival meetings. But is that the only time revival takes place? I hope not. The Spirit of God can speak to your heart this morning. 
right where you're sitting. And if you're listening and you have a willingness to obey, you can have a revival right there in your seat. Or the Spirit of God can speak to you through your daily time in the Word at home, and you can have a revival in the privacy of your own home. Charles Spurgeon again said, A great portion of modern revivalism has been more a curse than a blessing because it has led thousands to a kind of peace before they have known their misery. Restoring the prodigal to the father's house and never making him say, Father, I have sinned. How can he be healed who is not sick? And, or he be satisfied with the bread of life who is not hungry? He went on to say the old-fashioned sense of sin is despised. The consequence is that men leap into religion and then leap out of it again. Unhumbled they came to church, unhumbled they remained in it, and unhumbled they go from it. I'm afraid that's true much too often. Someone else has Rightly argued, true religion, and he meant genuine Christianity, in a great part consists of holy affections, that is, emotions. When God changes our hearts to the new birth, he gives us a new desire for holiness and a hatred towards sin. And these emotional qualities and many others will increase over time, but a distinguishing mark of a true Christian is that he mourns over sin, both his own sin and the sin of others. Ezra was so steeped in God's word and the history of God's ways with the errant people that he knew that God's severe discipline would fall again if the people did not repent. And even though Ezra himself had not committed this particular sin, you find that Ezra identifies himself here with the sin of the people and he mourns over it like he had done it himself. What would you think of a doctor who upon discovering that you had cancer said, here, let me give you a hug, take two aspirin and you'll just be fine. Or what would you think about a fireman who responded to a report of a house fire, came to your house and said, oh, it'll burn out. It'll burn itself out. Don't worry about it. Or about a policeman who arrived at the scene of a robbery and he shook his head and said, boys will be boys. In every case, the response is inappropriate for the situation. A Christian's response to sin, whether his own or the sin of other believers, should be to mourn. That attitude stems from a trembling at the words of God and their godly reaction to sin is to first recognize it from Scripture and then mourn over it. Thirdly, the godly reaction to sin is to confess it without excuse. Ezra's prayer here is a model of confession. And it, can, it has four elements it has four elements. Number one, confession acknowledges. What does it acknowledge? It acknowledges the absolute righteousness of God in all his dealings with us. 
Ezra affirms God's righteousness in his past punishment of Israel by sending them into captivity. He says in verse 15, O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous. In verse 13, he acknowledges that God has given them less than they deserve. Well, I can say amen to that. Every one of us have gotten less than we deserve. That's called mercy. Thank God for His mercy. And the implication of verse 14 is that if God were to give them what they deserved, He would have just totally wiped them out. Ezra exonerates God while accepting the blame for what the people have done. Confession acknowledges Secondly, confession submits. This submission is to God's righteous dealings without complaint or without excuse. We're so quick to make excuses for our sin, aren't we? But there's not even a hint of complaint on Ezra's part that God had not been fair. He does not point to some extenuating circumstances. Perhaps there was not an adequate supply of Jewish women for them to marry. Well, if there's not enough women, we've got to marry the pagans. Not an excuse. Perhaps the men rationalize, but our wives promised to worship at the temple with us. If I married them, they would come to church with me. But Ezra laid aside all their excuses And rather than complaining about God's judgment, Ezra acknowledged that God would be justified to inflict much more punishment than he had. Ezra's identification with the people in spite of his own innocence of sin shows that he knew the evil lurked in his own heart. And if he had been self-righteous, he would have prayed, Lord... You know, these people of yours are just obstinate and wicked. You are righteous to judge them, but I'm not like they are. No, that's not what Ezra said. Instead, he included himself when he confessed the sins of the people. Many years ago, a correspondent of London Times was reporting on many problems that we now have in our society, in our world. And he ended every article with the question, what's wrong with the world? A fellow by the name of G.K. Chesterton wrote a brief reply. He said, dear editor, what's wrong with the world? I am. Faithfully yours, G.K. Chesterton. You know what's wrong with the world? Me. A biblical confession doesn't excuse oneself. By the way, Chesterton was not a Baptist, but I think he had the right perspective there. Confession acknowledges. Confession submits. Thirdly, confession agrees. There's an agreement with God concerning his view of our sin. We are prone to minimize our sin by calling it a shortcoming, a fault, or we have this tendency and some other you know weak term Ezra admits his shame because he says our iniquities 
are increased over our head. Verse 6. In other words, we're drowning in the flood of our sins. He refers to their great trespass because their iniquities had led them to captivity in verse 7. He admits for forsaking God's commandment by joining with the uncleanness, the abominations, and the impurity of the peoples of the land in verses 10 and 11. And refers again to their evil deeds and their great trespass in verse 13 for breaking God's commandments and committing these abominations in verse 14. He doesn't gloss over them. He says, Lord, you're right. We have sinned. I agree with you. You know what that is? That's confession. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us all from all unrighteousness. That word confess means to agree with God about our sin. And Ezra did that. He didn't say, oh, it's no big deal. He calls it what it is. And then fourthly, confession casts. The sinner cast himself on God's undeserved mercy. And it's based upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Ezra's prayer makes no petition here, but he implicitly cast himself and the nation, his people, uh, on God's undeserved mercy. He acknowledges the current return from exile and the building of the temple are a gracious little reviving. I like that. The little reviving. Boy, we could use a little reviving. But he calls it that. A little reviving, verses 8 and 9. Which those who have sinned have ungratefully disregarded. Again, I'm not against revival. I'm all for it. It's a biblical thing. It's talked about here. But it's not a week of meetings. Okay? Now, during a week of meetings, if the preacher we have come in uh, preaches God's Word, and people get right with God and get changed, then there's revival. Ezra made his prayer at the time of the evening offering, it says in verse 5. Perhaps the smell of the sacrifice encouraged his heart that God had made a way for sinners to be reconciled to him, namely through the shedding of the blood of a substitute. Remember, the Old Testament sacrifices point ahead to the shed blood of God's perfect and final sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. Through faith in Christ's blood applied to our hearts, we can draw near to God for the cleansing of our sins. And so that brings us to the conclusion here this morning. Someone once said, God is never fully valued until sin is clearly seen. So our first reaction to sin must be that we see it clearly from the Scriptures. And then realizing that it put the Savior on the cross, we should mourn over it. It should, it should cause us to be mournful. And finally, then, we don't just cry about it and don't just weep about it and don't just mourn about it, but we say, Lord, I agree with you. I acknowledge my sin. I come before you and I ask your forgiveness. We confess it. We confess it, and we 
do it without excuse. We don't say, Lord, you know, if so-and-so wouldn't have been doing that, I wouldn't have sinned. Uh, if my my uh, husband or my wife wouldn't have been so mean to me, I wouldn't have sinned. We don't make excuses. We just say, Lord, I'm casting myself upon your mercy. I don't deserve your forgiveness, but I'm asking for it. And I'm confessing my sin before you. You know, as we grow in godliness with Ezra, we will react more strongly to our own sins and to the sins of God's people. And we'll dwell more consistently at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, where God's mercy flows to repentant sinners. I'm going to ask every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed this morning.